today, Rooted fans, we have another special episode. Actually, I think all these are just special. So <laughs> at this point, having just me and Jordan is going to be special. But today we have Karen Sargent joining us. Karen, how are you? Karen. I'm great. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing fabulous. Fantastic. It is fantabulous. sunny. It is not ridiculously hot. All right. So, Karen. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Where do you grow up? And how did you uh, end up at Parkland Chapel? That is a lot of answers in one question. <laughs> oh, Jordan's worse at that. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so if we're going to start in the very beginning, I actually was born in Chicago, and my father passed when I was a baby, and my mom remarried, and I did early elementary in Indiana. And then we ended up in Missouri when I was in third grade. And um, so I basically grew up in Greenville, which is a little south of Farmington here. And that's where I graduated from high school. Okay, so how did you end up at Parkland Chapel? Well, um, we, my husband and I had, and and our daughters had attended the same church for about um, 23 years. We actually were relocated to the Ironton area about 27 years ago, I guess. And um, so we attended a church, and uh, we just got to a point where we felt like it was time to move on. And for some reason, Parkland Chapel, I had heard about Parkland Chapel. And several years ago, we drove by the building before the additions were added. And I just remember going, oh, there's that Parkland Chapel. And it's just so funny because the church was just somehow seated in my mind. And because there are a lot of churches around, and we hear about a lot of churches, but um, when we decided it was maybe time to start looking for a, a new church home, this was the first place we came just because it's like, well, hey, let's let's try this Parkland Chapel. And we came to our first service on Easter in 2018, and that was kind of the end of the story. So we've been here ever since. Oh, you've been here for a while. <laughs> We have been for a little while, which it seems like it's been six months, but uh, yeah, it has been a little while when I think about it. Oh man, I thought you were just like new since this last year, Yeah. but then again, I'm kind of new since this last year, so. Because you've been out and about, right? Yeah, so I mean, I've been around for like 10 years, but you know, the last five, six years have been like in and out, in and out. No one really knows who I am, but I stick out because I'm Asian. Yeah. (laughs) That's really about it. Well, so, our first year, we came, we started in 2018, and um, I was in and out for a while because my mom had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So I was I missed a lot of Sundays because I spent a lot of time taking care of her. So we were in and out, and then um, not too long after she passed, my husband was diagnosed with leukemia. So we spent a year of not being in church on a lot of weekends because he wasn't able to be, and uh, and then you know 2020 hit. So. So we've been here, I guess we could, you could say we've been here for three, I guess it's three years, right? Yeah, for three years, but we've probably been to a year's worth of services <laughs> by the way it's all worked out. And so you, you said your husband, is he in law enforcement? He retired um, in, he retired March 1st of 2019 and was diagnosed March 19th. Jeez. Of 2019. Yeah. So it's, it's not exactly the way we plan to start retirement. I always told him, you know, my idea of traveling was not staying at the Barnes Jewish bed and breakfast, <laughs> you know, at the hospital for 30 days at a time. But um, that's that's how it all worked out. But yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what was that like 
as a wife, what were some challenges and then what were some of the triumphs through that? Well, it certainly was a journey filled with challenges, but I would say the triumphs equaled or actually outweighed. Um, One of the big blessings was I was also planning to retire in 2019 from teaching And I was retiring early with 25 years in and at 50. And it just seemed weird that I was planning to retire early because I'm like this very responsible person. And it just didn't make sense that I was retiring early in a lot of ways because I still loved my job. But I just really felt that's what I was supposed to do and had felt that way for a few years. And so when my husband was diagnosed, it just kind of made sense. You know, I don't know how God works all of those plans, but I do know that I was in a position that I needed to finish out a couple of months of teaching in my school district, which is Arcadia Valley, was extremely um, just very generous in my time and and letting me be where I needed to be. And so um, I retired and my sole focus got to be my husband for the next 10 months where he needed a lot of help. And we were spent 93 days in the hospital out of 10 months. So, um, so that was a huge blessing. Um, another blessing is we met so many people who were going through the same journey that we were going through. Um, the eighth and ninth floors of the Sightman Cancer Center, those are all leukemia, lymphoma, bone marrow transplant patients. So you're either on the eighth floor or the ninth floor. You get to know the nurses. You see familiar faces because everybody's in and out for different treatments at different times. And so we made a lot of um, really good friends through that and got to journey together with a lot of people. And um, some of the challenges are um, of the five couples that we got to be good friends with, only two of the leukemia patients are still surviving. So we're very blessed that my husband is one of them. And um, God just put so many people in our path um, during that time. So can I tell you a story? Of course. Yes. <laughs> okay. So so um, we knew with my husband that we had a couple of options that one would be he would uh, go into remission and stay in remission and, you know, just be monitored for the rest of his life. Or he would have to have a bone marrow transplant. So um, he did achieve remission, and we thought we were on that path, and so we were very excited. And at a doctor's appointment, we were surprised and kind of blindsided when the doctor said she had decided he needed to have a bone marrow transplant because of some things that had factored. She didn't feel like he would stay in remission for a year. And so we had to go on this you know, big hunt for the bone marrow donor who ended up being our daughter. So... Um, He had his bone marrow transplant in September, September 12th of 2019, and going into the transplant, um, I knew that um, there was about a 20% chance that it could be fatal, and so it was really the first time that I had been scared through the whole process. Um, I just, I'd always felt very much at peace, and I always reassured my husband, we're going to get through this, it's going to be okay, God's got us. But I just really got worked up about this transplant, and I had been back to school to get things ready for me to be gone, and I was driving back to St. Louis, and the whole time I'm uh, playing uh, Michael W. Smith's, you know, this is how we fight our battles, that I just over and over and over, and just praying, because I was just really feeling this, I just, I don't know, of all the months, we'd been into it at this point for a lot of months, and it was just scary. And so I get to Barnes Hospital, and there's a special parking garage for uh, the cancer treatment center. 
and it's it's super convenient. And anyway, I, I get to the parking garage and it's full and it had never been closed before. And when you're going to stay in the hospital with, you know, a loved one for 30 days, your car is packed because you're moving in. And I knew I had to park in a parking garage on the other side of the campus. And it was going to be a long haul to get all my junk, um, you know, food. And, uh, you have to take, a um, Oh, a foam, what a memory foam pad, you know, because the little cots they have you to sleep on are horrible. I mean, I've just got this big bulky, you know, stuff to carry. And so I'm just, you know, this is just great. I'm fretting and now the garage is closed. And so I get to the other parking garage and I have to top, uh, park all the way on the top because of course everybody's parking there now because the other garage is closed. And I, I was just and not in a good place in my head. And so I find a wheelchair and I just load it with all my stuff so I can try to make one trip. And then I'm feeling guilty because I'm using a wheelchair for the wrong purposes, you know? And <laughs> so I'm just all in this place. And so I get to the elevators in the parking garage to go down to the floor I needed to go to. And an elevator, the elevator was full and a gentleman was holding the door for me to get on, but there's no way I could get on with the wheelchair but he's looking at me goes and he said to me are you coming and I and as soon as he said that the left elevator opened and there was only one man on that elevator and I said so I told the man no thank you and so I went to get on the other elevator so I pushed my wheelchair up junk on the elevator and the guy looked at me and he just goes are you okay no he, no he goes how are you doing and I just looked at him and I said I'm just a little bit crazy because that's kind of how I felt. And he goes, yeah, me too. He said, I have to come here every three months for labs and to see my doctor. Well, that just kind of hit me because I thought, well, when my husband gets through this, that will be our routine. He'll have to come every three months for labs, you know, and to see his doctor. So I said to him, do you mind if I ask why you're here? And he said, yeah. He said, I had a bone marrow transplant seven years ago and I'm here from my labs and my doctor. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, my husband's getting his bone marrow transplant tomorrow. And I said, do you mind if I, you know, pick your brain a little bit? And he said, no, you know, so we get off the elevator and here I am pushing my big wheelchair full of junk, following this stranger, asking him all these questions. But, um, he just, you know, talked to me about his process and, you know, here seven years later and he's thriving. And, um, I told him, uh, when we reached his doctor's appointment and I decided I should not go into the doctor's office with him, <laughs> I told him, you know, I said, this really was a God thing. I said, I, you just don't know the place that my heart and my head has been in. And he said, uh, well, this really was a God thing. He said, because I don't talk to strangers on elevators, but I knew I was supposed to talk to you. So that's one story. I could probably tell 10 more of where God just showed up and always through people. Challenges are, my husband has had so much chemo. I mean, his first week in the hospital, he was on chemo 24 hours a day for seven days. I mean, hooked to a chemo pole constantly. I mean, I didn't even know that that existed. And that was his, his first round of chemo. So he's had so much. And even though he is doing extremely well, um, the chemo and the transplant have taken a toll on pretty much almost every system in his body. So, you know, we've got dermatologists and cardiologists and uh, ophthalmologists and, you know, all the doctors. And so it's always uh, treating different parts of his, you know, system that were affected. And, and sometimes things pop up, you know, just even a few months ago or a couple, few weeks ago, we had something new pop up and it's all effects of that. And um, so it's always something, um, but 
you know, anytime we have to deal with, okay, we've got to take a pill for this or a pill for that or whatever, we're here and, you know, this is our story and we've got a story to tell and God has blessed us tremendously through this journey and through the people he put in our path. So. That's incredible. <laughs> I, I didn't even know just looking at him. First, I had to figure out who your husband was, but I figured it was probably the man that we would sit next with. It is. Every Sunday. I do sit next to my husband every Sunday. <laughs> and he does look a lot different from all his, his 32 years in, as a, in law enforcement. Last 25 as a trooper. Uh, always have to shave every day. Now he's got that beard. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but I, do you approve of the beard? You know, here's what I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm, I'm living with this one because he did let it get a little bit shaggy. And he's really not a beard guy in terms of he doesn't just have an abundance of facial hair. <laughs> you know? so, uh, so he's keeping it nice and trimmed now. So I'm okay with it. So how did you and your husband meet? I really decided, been trying to decide if I should tell the truth on this story. <laughs> and it, it's not as exciting as it sounds. It's, it's, it's just weird. <laughs> So, okay, we've already established that we're from a very, very small town, right? And my husband is five years older than me. Um, and so uh, his dad was my fifth grade teacher. And we were out, we were at school playing, or at recess, we were playing softball. And um, my teacher, Mr. Sargent, said, oh, there's my son. And so um, I saw him walking across the campus because we have, you know, high school and all of our schools were all together because we were so small, holding hands with his girlfriend. So he was a sophomore and I was in fifth grade. So it's the first time I became aware of him. Um, but that year, no, oh, this is the weird part. I can't believe I'm going to tell this. <laughs> so, cause it is so weird. And even in today, in this society today, you're going to be like, how can that even happen? But, um, so my best friend, Sherry and I, uh, were in Mr. Sarge's fifth grade class as I already, uh, stated. And, um, uh, we were teacher's pets. And part of that was because he'd always wanted daughters and didn't. And so he said to us one day, and also let me say, uh, Mr. Sargent was bivocational. He is also a pastor. So he is a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) I know I need to, you know, set all this up. So, um, he says to Sherry and me one day, you girls should come and spend the night with us. Like, okay, would that ever happen today? See, as I told you, this is weird. And so we're like, okay. And so one day we packed our bags and we went and spent the night with the sergeants. But again, it's a small community and everybody knew each other and, you know, through church churches and, you know, whatever. And so um, uh, so my, my future mother-in-law, <laughs> <laughs> you know, has these two fifth grade girls in her house. And uh, so it became... Rusty's job, or Russ as he's known in his adult years, his job to entertain the two girls, and he had a three-year-old brother, and so we walked to the creek, and um, on our way, and he had to hold hands with his little brother because he was three, and uh, because we're walking along a country highway, and I said to my, whispered to my friend Sherry, I wish he'd hold my hand, and Sherry goes, Karen wants you to hold her hand, and so he just, I just remember him looking down at me and just like disgust. <laughs> at this little annoying girl, you know, these girls he has to basically babysit. And so he held my hand. um, And uh, whenever we got back to his house, he later tells the story that he told his mom, mom, I had to hold her hand. And 
Mary Sue was like, oh, rest. She's just a little girl. So then we actually started dating my senior year. He had graduated from college and uh, had come back home. And uh, we were at that time going to the same church together at that point. And um, uh, so that was always a story that haunted us was that, you know, I was just a little girl. (laughs) Will you hold my hand? So we heard that a lot as we were dating. So How long have you and Russ been married? 34 years in June. It'll be 34 Ooh. years in June. Hey. Anniversary coming up? Yes, anniversary coming Sweet. up. 34, you said. Mm-hmm. Okay. How did you come to know Jesus? Um, well, it's really kind of another very long story, so here you go. Um, when we lived in Indiana, when I was, you know, so less than third grade, so pretty young, my mom uh, had remarried. I said she remarried after my father died, and um, he was not a Christian man, and my mom was not a Christian. And um, I don't know how this happened either, but somehow this family who lived somewhere in our town, the and I, I really wish I had got the details from my mom before she passed because now I'm really curious. But anyway, so the, the husband or the father of this family at some point ran into my mom and asked if he could pick my brother and my sister and I up for Sunday school. And she says yes to the stranger, which, you know, this is back in the 70s. So this really kind of blows my mind to think about today. So this gentleman would pick up my brother and I, my little sister ended up not going, and he would take us to Sunday. First of all, here's how it would go. He would take his family to church, drop them off, come and get my brother and I and take us to Sunday school. And then after Sunday school, he would take us back home, and then he would go back to church. And so that's why I really want to know who this man was, that he put that much effort into kids that he didn't know in a family he didn't know because we were not from that community. But I just remember being, you know, I was probably in kindergarten, somewhere, something like that. I remember being in the church basement and sitting on the little wooden benches and singing, you know, the B-I-B-L-E and Jesus Loves Me and, you know, all of those songs. And I didn't completely understand what was going on and what it all meant, but I knew, I knew those, that was true for me. And I knew that's where I was supposed to be. And I just love thinking back on how being so young and knowing that Jesus was choosing me through that Sunday school program or through Sunday school, there ended up being an after school program called busy bees. And my mom let me be in busy bees through the church. And she would come and pick me up, um, but then a lady had invited her to attend a Bible study that also happened during Busy Bees, and so that's ultimately how my mom became a Christian. And then we moved to Missouri, and um, there was a little church, country church close to us. We were in the boonies, which my mom did not attend regularly, just, um, it, you know, her husband wasn't a Christian, so it, it was just a difficult situation sometimes. But there was a couple in the church who were an older couple and they'd never had children and they kind of adopted me as their granddaughter kind of. And so they always made sure I was in church. And um, that was, and that's the church where I was saved at 10. Um, That's how I came to know Jesus. And I just, you know, look back on my uh, experience as a child and even into my teen years, um, God always put somebody in my life to make sure that I was in church. Yeah, so was there was there a moment or like time period whenever like Jesus like really became real to you and it was like no longer like people making like I mean besides like you know holding you accountable but you're like I want to go to church I want to pursue Jesus because he's pursued me. 
That's really a good question because I do think a lot of my uh, young life and early adult life was uh, just doing the right thing, showing up, you know, on church, at church and being there and, and doing the things I was supposed to do. But also from the background that I had too in the churches that I did attend, as all the boxes to check, you know, checking the right ones, you know, not checking the wrong ones. And so I really didn't understand God is a God of love so much. And the church that we spent 23 years in, that really is where um, that shift took place, where um, uh, I really understood my relationship with God and my relationship with Jesus on a whole new level. And it was just the way that it was presented you know, it wasn't, um, oh, if you do this, God's going to be angry with you, you know, because that's a lot of what how I grew up. So somewhere in those early, uh, those 23 years, just it was just a transition that, you know, I just got to see our Heavenly Father in a much different light. So how has that changed how you, you know, like really realizing God is a God of love versus a God of works? How has that changed how you live now that you're you're like on the other side of those 23 years? It changed everything because I was born with an overactive guilty conscience. So I always, I was never secure in my salvation. And, um, you know, I always knew my failures and um, just always carried a burden. And when I understand understood who God really was, it was just like, that just melted away and just being able to enjoy being a Christian, enjoy being a daughter of the King and knowing that he's not keeping track of, you know, Ooh, what did I do well today? And what, where did I fail today? And, um, just really just to be able to enjoy that relationship and, and then really understand how Jesus loves and just want to love like that, you know, and, and to share that with other people um, in the way that I interact with people. Tell us about some people who have really shaped your walk with Christ. The one that just really comes to my mind so much, and this is why I keep thinking, I'm trying to go back, trying to go back, but the person who has really been such a huge, huge influence and um, um, is Pat Larkin, who does attend church here. Um, Pat and I worked together my first few years teaching at Arcadia Valley. She retired um, not too long after I started teaching there, and so I, I knew Pat, and I knew she was a sweet, sweet person, but when you teach, you don't really have a whole lot of time to interact with people. And then we ended up attending the same church together. And um, her husband passed. And a year or two after that, our pastor was uh, teaching a message um, and was based on uh, the widows and the orphans, taking care of the widows and the orphans. And God just put Pat on my heart. And, and I don't like people to be lonely. I just, that I don't, I want people to feel welcomed and fit in. And I don't like people to feel lonely. And um, Pat had lots and lots of friends and she keeps herself very busy. Um, so she probably didn't really need me, but, um, I just, he just put her on my heart. And so I t told her, you know, Hey, let's, let's do a coffee date once a week. And so we started doing that before I went to work 
And then we realized that 30 minutes in the morning was not enough time for us to talk. So we try to have a coffee date uh, at least one afternoon for two or three hours every week. And um, I kind of joke, she takes care of the widow, or I take care of the widow, and she takes care of the orphan. <laughs> and um, But she's just such a tremendous um, influence. She's a prayer warrior. She is in the Word. Um, I can have conversations with her that I really can't have with other people to the, the depth that uh, we can talk. And she just teaches me so much. And I ask her a lot of hard questions. And you want me to ask, tell you the hard question I just asked her? Yes. We'll see, we'll see what you guys think about this. Because she tells me I have to take this to um, Pastor Mike. So um, there's this saying that, and I know you've heard it, that faith is not, what is it? Gee, I just lost it. Faith is not knowing God can, it's believing he will. So faith is not knowing he can do it. It's believing he will do it. And so I asked her, is that really biblical? You know, we know God can do things, but is faith really believing that he will? Because he has his own will, you know? And so if we're asking something, you know, so anyway, so that's our big, that's our big, our big question that we're trying to answer now is that if that's biblical. And I think we've kind of decided that it's not, you know, we we're going through the trying to go through different stories where uh, Jesus healed people or, or uh, different miracles were performed and trying to decide, did those people believe he would do those things or did they just believe he could, you know, what's the requirement there for <laughs> faith? So that's what we're throwing around. Hmm. So, so your question ultimately is um, like, how, how tr biblical is that saying? Mm -hmm. But then when you're looking at it through, it's like, like, what is faith? What is, or what, what is faith kind of in a way, but like, what is, is faith believing that God, yeah, God can and will, or that he could and will? I don't know. It's what's required of us. <laughs> okay. What's required, like, like for my husband, when he had leukemia, mm -hmm. you know, I prayed that God would heal him. Mm -hmm. Do I have to believe that God will, will heal him? Is that faith? Do I, is that required of me? Mm. You well, know, because I, mean, I don't know what God's will is. I didn't know mm -hmm. what his plan was for us. Yeah. I mean, it's like, he has said is if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Right. You know, he, I mean, but like, what does that like look like? And I, I mean, I think to a point that's kind of putting that phrase is kind of like putting our, I don't want to say westernized, but like putting our human like thought process in it because it's like, that uh, the the lady that touched Jesus's robes, right. like she's like, I don't know what was going through her brain exactly, but she she knew that Jesus could, and she she like, if I just touch his robes, maybe his power will like come through me. So it's like it's almost like I'm taking. I don't know where this is gonna lead, but at least it's it's better than everything else that I have tried. Because you know it's hard to pray, at least for me. You know I can go, okay, God, I know you will do this. But there's also this little part of me that's going, no, I don't know that. Yeah, so then what if he doesn't do it? Yeah. And so, so I'm doubting mm -hmm. anyway. So then it makes it hard to to believe and to, uh, to ask because I'm like, well, I'm not asking with 100% belief that he will. Then, so why am I asking? Cause and then, so, Because then with that idea, if you pray, I have the faith that, God, you will do this. Well, then what if he doesn't? <laughs> then 
is it on you now? Like, did you not have enough faith? And I love the illustration. It's not about the f- amount of faith we have, but the faith of who we have it in. And I was reading this in Hebrews the other day. It says faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see, or faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So that's in Hebrews 11. But I don't think faith uh, is the key to unlock what we want from God. I think it's we hope for. We know that God can do it. We know that he will do it, but even if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust in him. I think that's in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to go into the fire. Um, We hope and we pray that he will do it, but we have to, I think, understand God's ways are so much higher and mightier. And I I think when you do take that approach, I think it does put pressure on the person, and it puts all the focus on the human if I have the faith, man, it's going to happen. Like, God will do this. And I think I think that even gets mis, uh, misinterpreted to be, now it's on you. Now it's your faith. Like, it, well, if it worked for Elena, well, then does she have more faith than I do? And if is her faith more valid than mine, then and I don't think, I don't think that is, I, have, I haven't read that phrase in the Bible where... And it, that, that particular one? Yeah. Is not. It's a man-made yeah. phrase. Yes. And so that's where I was saying, you know, to me it's, you know, the problems with that are one, we're praying for something that is we know is our will, but yeah. we don't know necessarily. You know, we don't know what God's will is. And so that's where I felt like there was a hole in that. And then, um, and why it just hit me, you know, last yeah. week, I have no idea. But then the other thing is um, I just decided, because that phrase, um, you know, I just see it, in, it's on plaques, it's on T-shirts, mm-hmm. it's, you know, on you know, graphics or whatever on social media. And I just feel like um, what an untruth, a difficult untruth that that is spreading. Yeah, and there's a lot of untwisting to do there. There's another phrase too. I don't know if you heard this one. It's God helps the man who helps himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's the most unbiblical thing because if you can help yourself, then you don't need God. God helps those who cannot help themselves. We come to God humbly. We We don't bring anything to the table. It doesn't even matter about our faith. Like when Jesus was healing people, not everybody was a believer. You know, people would touch him, get healed, and I don't think they were going to Jesus because, oh, here's the Son of God. I have faith in him that he can do. It's like, I can be healed. Now I can go away. (laughs) It's like, sweet, I got my benefit. I'm done. Um, But there are those phrases that get tossed around so much that seem, it's like Christianese. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's such a good... Good quote right there. Um, but a lot of the times it's like, well, I never really find it in the Bible. And for me, when I hear that phrase, it's like, oh, I got to do, I got to have, I got to have this a huge amount of faith to do this. And uh, and then the thing is like, what if God doesn't do it? Like, <laughs> like, and then, I mean, obviously we don't know his will through that. But for me, that provides ease. I can pray for this. I believe God can, and I believe he will do this. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to love God because his ways are like so much greater. And and it's, it's especially easier praying for somebody who has faith in Christ. That's what makes my heart hurt so much is when people are going through a tough time like that. And then somebody shares something like, uh, man, just have, just have this faith that God will do it. And then if that if that's an unbeliever and they're really trying to test out Christianity and then it doesn't 
happen, <laughs> then it's just like, well, I'm not going to believe in God now. I had faith and he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it can be a huge stumbling block. Uh, for some Christians and some, and obviously some non-believers too, if they really are trying to follow this Jesus, and then this healing uh, doesn't happen. If that answers the question, yeah, absolutely. And I think back to to Pastor Mike talking about or teaching us about God's perfect will. You know, um, uh, we can pray and ask, but um, I've certainly learned to, if I do whatever I pray and ask for. I always pray. I always, you know, try to be very conscious about praying. But God, whatever is your perfect will, mm-hmm. I want your perfect will. I don't want anything less. Yes. And so, um, that kind of cancels out that whole believing God will do something that I'm asking mm-hmm. because that may not be His perfect will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, He may He may do it, but it may not be in the way that we think that He should. And then it's just like, did you actually do? And it's like, well, yeah, I did, but not in the way that you thought I did. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, I think it's important that we still ask, you know, and I, I think God as a father, and I hear so many parents, it's like, I, I love hearing, like having my children ask for ice cream or, you know, I might say no, but I still love hearing the requests. Yeah. You know, I can't relate to that, but hearing these parents talk about that, it's like, it gives a little glimpse into like oh so you you know it's like it's good to ask and even as a child I was like you know I would be afraid to ask for like a piece of candy or something like that you know because I was afraid of the no but you know and it ultimately it was for my own good you know I wasn't gonna rot my teeth so I mean I, I think that's kind of where it is and I, I like how you said it's like at the end it's like God ultimately like I really want what you are done and that's kind of like a heart check it's like even if not like go for it and that was huge actually saw that so much on my team when I broke my foot like there were people that were praying that it would just be like miraculously healed and I'm like no no like don't pray for that like I I knew ultimately maybe maybe it was a little prophetic or whatnot but it's just like I'm like I don't think that's gonna happen you know and maybe it was a lack of faith or not whatnot I'm like I kind of wanted to go through it you know and you know and like even then it's like it didn't happen but the prayers didn't stop it's like okay well you still have to go into surgery so let's pray that the surgery goes well you know and there are no complications and you don't have to have a cast and all this so it that prayer wasn't answered that was a no that i'm not going to do it miraculously but let me do it in a different way my foot still healed you know it just took a longer time and over that time god was used in a bigger way than if we were just like oh he was miraculously healed and then you have you know you yeah. kind of have that little like i don't want to say disconnect but it's like oh <laughs> You know, I mean, it would have been a different story. It would the have been a different we, testament to the God. The things we go through grow us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never you never see anybody in the Bible get just plucked out of a situation. Unlike, I mean, Elijah, he got to ride in a chariot of fire. But, like, he, I mean, he got to go through a lot. And I think that's the thing following Jesus um, that people don't really understand. Like, it's getting through them, not getting away from them. Pain causes us to grow deeper with God. When you go through a big hurt with somebody together, it's it's deep. It's it's very intimate. Um, and praying, not necessarily praying praying for that to go away. Like why pray away from the challenge? Like the challenge builds and it and it builds and just makes you stronger. So don't pray necessarily to take that away. But God, what are you showing me through this now? Like what is this pain bringing me through? And sometimes He does heal miraculously. That's great. Fantastic. But even if he doesn't, he still promises, I'm going to get you through this. I'm not going to leave you hanging by uh, your own will or whatever you want, but I'm going to, I'm going to pull you through this. And I, I, lo- I love that too, because then it's like, oh, now I get to go on a challenge. Now it's an adventure. 
Now it's, okay, God, what are you really trying to throw me, show me through this? Because honestly, I don't see anything. So that's when the faith really kicks in. Now it's like, okay, I, <laughs> I, I can't I see the, I can't. I can barely see yeah. the hand in front of my face, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, well, and I think when we go through those difficult times that, and we can see, and anything I've ever been through, I can just look back and see that God just was moving the chess pieces. And I know that's kind of cliche, but I just don't know how else to explain it to where maybe in the midst, you may not see what's happening, but when you get beyond it, just to look back, it's like 2020 vision. It's so clear. And to me, it's such a faith builder because then when the next trial comes, you can look back and go, okay, we've done hard things Mm -hmm. and God's been there and he's got us through us through it. And this is how I'm different because of that. And so you just keep moving forward with that faith, and they're just such faith builders. Oh yeah, and I love that chess, uh, the chess piece analogy thing. There's because like in Esther, um, I, I'm going on a rabbit trail here, but like in Esther, the whole deal was for Satan to destroy the Jewish nation because if you destroy the nation, then you destroy the seed that was going to crush his head. And so, like, with Haman, that's, like, his little pawn or chess piece. And so Haman gets moved and, like, oh, I have the edict to destroy the Jews. And he says, check to God as they're playing chess. And then Esther does her thing and exposes the plan. And then God moves her, his queen into checkmate. And, like, I just love the analogy of that. Like, it is a chess match. And God does, it's like, man, okay, now it's check for me. God, what is going to happen? Uh, but he does get us through that. Yeah, and oh, I love Esther. Yes. Like, I just love how the story just completely changes and Haman's on the pole <laughs> that was meant for Mordecai. I'm like, yes! Yeah. Like, let's go. Like, yeah. <laughs> Chicken soup for the soul. Oh, yes. Chicken yes. soup. So, Karen, you are a published author. I am. So, it's separate. Famous person. Alert. Sad trumpet. Wait, 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 wait. That was so appropriate. I mean, seriously, it was. I always say I'm famous within a two mile radius because people will say, "Oh, they're so famous, author." (laughs) No, that's it. That that is that's the sound effect that better be in this podcast after you say that. That is the one. Wait, this is what I think we were going for. (laughs) No, no, it's this one. (laughs) I thought we had one that was like. I thought we, yeah, like a celebration. Did we? Celebration. That was going to be a while. (laughs) With that little rapid trail. Okay. You are a published author. Yes. Correct. This is separate from Chicken Soup from the Soul. Yes. From the Soul? Oh, my. (laughs) From, I don't even know what it is. Chicken Soup for the Soul. For the Soul. (laughs) Not from the position correct there. From the soul. One time I did have to memorize all 49 prepositions, but it was in song and it was fun. Fifth well, grade. Good. Fifth grade. English class. I went to St. Paul. They they taught you. If you know your prepositions, then it's easier to make your subjects and verbs agree. Yes. <laughs> this is the old Down. English teacher right here. During. <laughs> That's what I remember. Okay. Back to your published author. Yes. Which is you. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> Back to the published author, which is Karen. What book did you write? 
The book I wrote is called Waiting for Butterflies, and it's Christian fiction, but um, there's just all kinds of problems through that whole story, through the, through the whole experience there. So um, starting way back, I decided I wanted to become an English teacher because I love to read and write. And then when I became an English teacher, I had no time to read and write unless I was doing it for my kids in the classroom. And so I had this dream of writing a book that was really put on hold for a very long time. And when our second daughter was born, she was five months old and she did not sleep through the night and she's getting ready to turn 22 and she still is not a good sleeper. But um, so the whole story is... um, we got a phone call in the middle of the night, right about midnight. And you know when the phone rings, it's not that late, it's never good news. And we had found out that my mother-in-law at the age of almost 61 had just passed unexpectedly in her sleep. And so I called a friend to come and stay with our girls who were three and five months at the time. And so we could uh, go to down to Greenville to be with my father-in-law. And I told my friend, now the baby is not going to sleep through the night so here's what to do, and then she'll go back to sleep. And so we went and did our thing and came back the next afternoon, and I asked my friend who was single and had no children, so I was a little concerned about her taking care of the baby. Not the baby, just worried about her. And I said, you know, hey, how'd everything go? How was the night? She goes, oh, the baby slept through. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> this had never happened. And I'm like, okay, good job, Brandy. You know, good, good time to choose to sleep through the night. Well, for the next seven nights, she slept through the night. So, you know, it was just, it was a little bit weird. And of course I'm a writer, so I have an imagination and my husband and I are laying in bed and I said, you realize ever since your mother passed away, the baby has slept through the night. And he's like, I know, because he gets real (laughs) creeped out about things. And uh, it was quiet for a few minutes. And then he said, mom, if you're here, you can go now. And I kid you not, the baby did not sleep through that night or probably until she was two years old. And so I always say, I have no idea what happened. You know, I don't know what was going on there. You know, maybe God was just making her sleep for us because he knew we needed to sleep. But in a writer's mind, I started thinking, what would happen if a mother was taking from her family before she was ready to go? Because our mother-in-law was, my mother-in-law was not ready to go. She loved her family so much. And she had three granddaughters under the age of three. She had so much ahead of her. So what would happen if a mother was taken from her family and wasn't ready to go? Um, And so that was the idea that started my story, Waiting for Butterflies. And so I always joke that um, that book, it took me 10 years to start writing it, but and then it took me forever to finish it just because I was teaching and raising children. But it released in April of my youngest daughter's senior year. So I always say it took me 18 years to write a book and raise a baby so and so how did you get involved with chicken soup for the soul well one thing you learn really quickly when you start trying to publish books is that there's really no money in it you know unless you're selling millions of copies and that just doesn't happen on your first book and so I was looking for other ways to fund my writing budget I was teaching writing workshops. Um, I do a lot of teaching in St. Louis and Cape Girardeau at the Writers Guilds there, um, combining my passion for writing and passion for teaching. And um, I attended a writing conference, and um, 
took a class on writing for Chicken Soup for the Soul because they pay 200 bucks a story. And uh, the story can be like 750 to 1,200 words. So, you know, that's a nice little payout. And so I took a class on how to write for Chicken Soup for the Soul and started submitting and started getting acceptances. And then I started teaching classes because teaching is what I do. And uh, I've I only got to teach a few chicken soup classes before COVID hit and shut everything down, but uh, two students from my very first class uh, were published in the Christmas Chicken Soup for the Soul book just this last Christmas, so that was super, super exciting, and I'm looking forward to getting to teach more classes. So, And um, I also write for Guideposts. Oh, there's Guidepost Magazine, and which has been around for a gazillion years, and they have a lot of uh, other offshoots from just the main magazine, but... Um, I've written for three of their devotionals, and um, two of them just came out recently. One comes out in July, and right now I'm writing for Mornings with Jesus, which is a devotional that uh, a daily devotional for 365 days that will be out in 2023. So, I actually coach aspiring writers, and one of the things I really have to do is talk them down to reality, saying, you know, hey, four um, percent of books end up in a in a bookstore. I mean, it's just so small and the average book sells 250 copies in its first year and 500 copies in a lifetime. So that's the reality of it. And if you traditionally publish where you go through a publisher, a royalty paying publisher, you might make a buck a book, you know, because everybody else gets their cut. And so it's just not, it's not what the aspiring author envisions. Um, but then we keep doing it anyway, so it's kind of like torture. <laughs> but when you got to write, you got to write, so it's what you do. And so I actually um, am a, about to, hopefully by the time this comes out, it will be true. But I've got a contract coming for my second book, so I'm super excited about that, which I have So this Friday? This Friday, mm, I don't That's know. when this episode's coming out. <laughs> well, so. I, didn't, I didn't name a publisher, so that will be okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, my writing has been on hold um, because of, you know, I mentioned in 2018 my mom was sick. In 2019 my husband was sick and into 20. And so uh, I finally got to start writing last March and finished in July and started doing all the polishing and shopping a manuscript, so... So you're actually holding a writing seminar. I am here. so excited. My favorite thing to do is to teach writing to people who want to write. Awesome. So pitch that for us. Pitch it for you. Yes. So Chicken Soup for the Soul publishes 101 stories in each book that they publish, and they publish about 12 books a year. And those stories are written by people just like us. And they say they want, um, how do they say it? Extraordinary stories from ordinary people or something along those lines. Those words are in their little tagline. Um, but it really is not difficult to write for Chicken Soup for the Soul. There's something very specific they're looking for. And um, I just love sharing those secrets and helping people achieve publication for the first time. Chicken Soup will receive somewhere around 3,000 to 5,000 submissions for each book. And so to be one of the 101 stories out of that bunch is challenging, but it may not be quite as challenging as it sounds because another thing that I do is um, people will send me stories that they're writing for Chicken Soup for the Soul and, and I, I'll critique them. 
And most of the stories that I receive just are so far from Target. And um, I used to edit a, a youth magazine and just the things that people send in. Um, a lot of times people will just write something and send it in and they just don't realize how far off Target the writing is. So of those 3,000 to 5,000 submissions Chicken Soup might get, I I know, even though I've not looked at the stack, I know in my heart of hearts that most of those are off target. So it really narrows the competition when you know what the target is. So, mm. and I just, uh, it's just so rewarding to get to see somebody publish for the first time. It's just, it's just the best. I'd, I could do that a hundred times over before I could publish. I get so excited to help other people reach that goal. So it's just a lot of fun. That's awesome. So if you want to join Karen, uh, for her writing seminar for Chicken Soup for the Soul, uh, come to church here on May 22nd. That's When this gets published, that'll be next Saturday. It'll be bright and early at 9 a.m. So, uh, Karen, what do you know, have an idea of what that is going to look like uh, for those two hours that you're going to be like just teaching people? Absolutely. So when people come in, um, one of the first things uh, we'll talk about is what makes a chicken soup soul chicken soup story what makes a chicken <laughs> soup soul <laughs> um, so we'll kind of dissect um, all of those parts and we'll look at some examples and uh, we'll talk about how to get started and how to kind how to find their stories that they have to tell because a lot of times people will be like oh I don't know what I'd write about well I've got a really effective way of priming the pump and helping them find those stories because most of the time they they're they don't just have to be these out of the world stories. It's the stories that we've experienced that, you know, through everyday life that other people can relate to. So I help them find those gold nuggets. And then um, I'll teach them how to uh, submit. There's actually a submission form online. So I'll teach them how to do all of that. All right, random questions. Oh, no. Random questions. We'll start off fast. easy. Yes. And just the first thing that comes to your mind, we won't dissect these. Mm-hmm. What's your best or most favorite way to cook a potato? Oh, I've already thought this question through. <laughs> first of all, I'm going to answer with eat a potato, and then I'll say cook a potato. So eat a potato is five guys french fries. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Cook a potato is loaded mashed potato casserole. I only cook casserole. it at Thanksgiving. It's that special. Is it casserole or a hot dish? What's the difference? My recipe says casserole, but it is a hot dish. Up in Minnesota, they don't say casseroles. They say hot dish. I think they're the really? same thing. They're Do they just throw everything together? Yeah, and but they don't call it a casserole. And if you call it a casserole, you're literally shunned. <laughs> it's hot dish. <laughs> I'll have to ask my friend about this. Okay. Uh, Beecher Mountains. I love, love the beach. We always go to the beach. But 
that's when I was working and really needed to relax. And now that we're retired, I would really love to go to the mountains. I've been a couple of times and my husband hasn't. So I really want to be with him when he experiences oh, that. I so. can just see you skiing like whoosh, down the mountain. There goes Karen Sargent. And you're just meow, meow, meow. That's what I picture. Elena, that's too funny because <laughs> it's not going to happen. At this point, I'm really afraid of falling because I just don't bounce and my bones are getting brittle. So Well, I, I mean, if you bounced, I think we would have other issues. <laughs> it would thinking. be, there goes Karen Sargent bouncing down the mountain. Humans are not supposed to bounce. <laughs> <laughs> if you are to lose one body part and detach it from your body, what would it be and why? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Um, oh, my word. I, I don't know. I'm detaching my left pinky toe because I broke it and I don't need it. Okay. All right. I think I need all my parts. <laughs> I think I need all my parts. <laughs> I might detach a tooth. But I would I would kind of like to see what it'd be like to have a prosthetic arm. We can make that happen. We have a chainsaw. chainsaw. <laughs> if you remember our Mindy episode, I remember listening to that and hearing us talk about, first of all, trimming... Uh, trimming hedges into giraffes and then me asking if i can get on jordan's shoulders to trim the tree with. which with a chainsaw and he goes you want me on your shoulders with a chainsaw so so if anyone out there that is artistic um jordan and i are looking for a photo that you know or not a photo but a, a nice creative drawing of me on his shoulders with a chainsaw by the fluffy tree that's what i want as to our- all our listeners <laughs> crickets <laughs> If you could have a, an animal on your shoulder, any animal in the world, but it would be perched on your shoulder for the rest of your life and it would just be your best friend to encourage you through anything, what would it be? A giraffe. A giraffe. I was going to go bingle tiger. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you were thinking big too. I love giraffes. Yes. Would it, would it be like, would the, would the neck come all the way up like so you could just speak into your ear? It's like a little microphone. I think so, and and high enough to where maybe it could see over a crowd that I couldn't see oh, over. So okay. could it yes. extend like <laughs> like, neck? Sure, sure. We can Spectre make it anything gadget. we want. <laughs> what is the perfect weekend? Oh, the perfect weekend would be my kids home, which would be my daughter Randy and my daughter Kelly and her husband Brandon, and a big cheesecake. And a lasagna, sitting around the table playing cards. Did you make the lasagna and cheesecake or did you have someone else make it and bring it to you? I'm going to make it because I have the best recipes. Mindy has my cheesecake recipe. Oh my god. Okay, gosh. now that you talk about it, what is she we hiding need some from cheesecake. us? Mindy. <laughs> Mindy. Or Karen, you can make it for us since you are oh, the yeah, OG, <laughs> OG one and she won't look at us. Mindy won't look at us like our like her children like. What's the worst thing you've ever eaten? Mm. I like a lot of foods, but I know there's something I don't like. The worst thing I've ever eaten. I don't know. This I is had such a terrible. A baked potato, and then I put sour cream on it. But the sour <laughs> cream was very liquidy, very Gosh. liquidy. And I took a bite, and it was it made me throw up. And I scooped the sour cream in the container to where the black mold is on this side, out of my vision. 
That's how I covered it. And yeah, it was the worst. My mom thought I was faking, and she said, quit doing that (laughs) as I'm gagging in the toilet. I have an answer. Before I could read, I went to the refrigerator, and there was a can of food in the refrigerator, and I took a bite. And my mom was at the sink, and she turned around. She goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm eating. And she goes, that's dog food. Oh, well, dog. So there you go. Dog but I don't food. remember it tasting terribly bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if this, this just in, Karen like... secretly eats dog food on her spare time. And cut. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Karen, we'll wrap this up. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure just to hear about your story and Russ's story and uh, how you came to Parkland Chapel and who shaped you and you know, what you're doing for, you know, to just really encourage uh, potential future published writers, you yes. know? And uh, so we're, we're very appreciative of you and love that you're around and that you entertain us with your stories. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And may your little giraffe friend come by someday. <laughs> Sticking up over the crowd. Looking. So if you, ever, if you ever see a little giraffe, just know that Karen's under it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rooted fans, we'll see you next week. Woohoo!